Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I turn up at Lady Barn because it's the congregation that my wife and myself kind of are based at in CCM and I was there this morning and um, helping set up. And sometimes I get there and uh, Emily, who's often on doing the, the cakes and the refreshments, she brings in these Chelsea buns. You know, they are just to die for, basically. And they're so big you have to half them, otherwise you kind of pop, basically. But, you know, they're my favourite. I mean, and, and I'm very happy to say they are, you know, my favourite. When I go hiking, um, I go with a, a big group, I'm in a, a hiking group, and, you know, genuinely, there's some people that you just like to get alongside and just chat to, do you know? And, you know, in a sense, they're my favourite, do you know? And I'm thinking, dare I even say this when I'm just going to look at a passage that actually digs into this a bit. But I just wanted to start by, you know, kind of engaging as the fact that we, often, we use it very positively. Do you know? Favourite food, favourite people, favourite place. We booked a holiday in Croatia for next year. This will be our third time we've gone to the same hotel, same place, because we honestly can say it's out of a lot of places we've been, it's, it's our favourite. And you know, why, you know, risk somewhere which might not be so good is what we're thinking. So, so often we use the term favourite and in a, well, I would say positive. Do you understand? It's just something that describes, it's a, you know, what we're feeling, what, what we're thinking. Uh, I um, looked on an online newspaper, I'd often look at the sports pages, and um, on uh, Friday, I think it was, there was a thing about Manchester United and uh, they were saying there's rumours coming out of the dressing room uh, that Ten Hag, the manager, has favourites and it was very negative, you know, that fundamentally he's happy to uh, say some things about some people and not others. And so suddenly you you see this word favourite coming slightly negative, you know, that actually is now discriminatory. It's something that is... And it could be hurtful. I mean, if you look at the thesaurus and put favouritism in it, actually the first things that come up are these words like partiality, prejudice, preferentialism. I think I've got about that. Nepotism, discrimination, preferential treatment. So that's, all, that makes it, that's the dark side, isn't it, of favouritism. So James is tackling... Favoritism, and as I first of all look at, I just have to acknowledge that I have favourites. Do you know? Uh, but I'm also aware that there is a negative connotation to that. If you're not careful, that actually we will dive into. Okay, is that okay? So that's my kind of uh, uh, how we're starting, and we're going to look at it in James chapter two. I'm going to go from 1 to 13. I'm going to actually spend a disproportionate time on verse 1, which actually isn't about favouritism, but it is about James and uh, 
Understanding who James was helps us understand the um, topics that he's uh, dealing with. And so verse 1, it says this, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favour some people over others? Okay? So in in one verse, he's encapsulating (laughs) what he wants to unpack um, in, uh, in the rest. But the first thing that I just want to draw our attention to is these words, have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, most commentators feel that James, who is writing this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. That uh, fundamentally, he grew up with Jesus. Now, can you imagine what that was like? <laughs> Could you imagine hearing the stories of his birth quite a few times? It just makes you think, doesn't it? How was it in this little village of Nazareth you grew up, Jesus in your midst? And the Bible has very little to tell us about those years. It kind of goes from birth to baptism and a little bit of a kind of excursion into when Jesus stayed back at Jerusalem, (laughs) I think when he was 12 years old or something like that, do you know? So it's actually not a lot um, there. But when Jesus starts his public ministry, we hear more about James, actually, and we hear more about his brothers and his sisters and his his mum. And I just want to kind of just focus in there a little bit and just help us to get a bit of background to James. And um, in uh, John 3, 7, sorry, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 3, it says this, And Jesus' brothers said to him, that's uh, James, one of those, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see the miracles, and you can become famous. If you, no, sorry, you can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. And then it says this, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Wow. So here's, here's, here's his brothers saying, it's skeptic, skepticism. They said, Jesus, if you are what you say you are, then don't hide, you know, don't just tuck yourself away. Get out there, perform more miracles. And they're saying it, with utter unbelief. So here's a guy that's writing a letter who's been brought up with Jesus and actually as Jesus is ministering, he's basically not believing. And then says in um, uh, Mark 3.20, we see some scepticism creeping into Jesus' brothers. One time Jesus entered a house And the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. And they said he's out of his mind. (laughs) Wow, so that's Mary and the brothers. They're trying to get him out of the house. He hasn't eaten. Come on, just trying to rescue him. He's, He's out of his mind. And then Luke 8, 19, we're getting different aspects of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters and 
his mum. In Luke 18, 8, 19, it says this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. Wow. You've come <laughs> to see your half of the Jesus. And he's basically, he's not disowning them. He's basically saying this, I've got a bigger family. <laughs> a bigger family are the people who obey my words. Can you imagine what James and the brothers thought of that? He's an unbeliever. He's sceptic. <laughs> and now he's, Jesus is saying, look, there's a wider family. Now, we know that Jesus loved his family. In fact, he loved them so much that when he was dying on the cross, with all the agony that that was, he saw John, one of his friends, one of his apostles, and he said, you must look after my mum, Mary. I mean, that is some deed. <laughs> when you're in agony of death, and I, you, know, I, you can't imagine what someone's thinking in that agony, and yet top of his mind <laughs> was, someone's got to look after my mum. <laughs> someone's got to look after Mary. So when he's saying these things, He's not saying that out of an attitude that sometimes we could <laughs> say it, you know. Uh, I don't want you, this is my new family. No, he was making another statement. But you can imagine what I think is, how did James hear it <laughs> at that point? I doubt if he heard it ultra-positively because of the mind frame that he was in. Well, we have another aspect of James. And... Uh, and that's when, in Matthew 13, 55, they, people of Nazareth and others are scoffing at Jesus. They are just saying, we don't want anything to do with him. And uh, they're saying this, it says Matthew 13, 55, Jesus is just a carpenter's son. And we know Mary's mothers, and we know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, all his sisters are living here amongst us. Where did he learn these things? You know, they're thinking, we grew up with this man. <laughs> he, he didn't grow up in the temple, he grew up in this village. <laughs> How did he get to know everything? Because <laughs> we didn't, and if we didn't, how did he do? You imagine it, can't you? You know, it's just a bit of kind of little village rivalry, <laughs> sibling rivalry, it's all there. And um, then Joseph, uh, and they were deeply offended and refused, this is the villagers, to believe in him. And Jesus told them, a prophet is honoured everywhere except in his own hometown and in an, his own family. So Jesus is hurt. His family are hurting him. His friends are hurting him. They're, they're rejecting him. Everywhere else, they're crowding around him, wanting to pray for them, teach them, help them. But in Nazareth, those he grew up with, his close-knit family, his village family, 
who would have brought each other's kids up, you know? It was, you know, an extended family, these village life. And uh, I think it says at the wedding yesterday, I think someone said, it takes a village to raise a kid. <laughs> and uh, that's definitely true how they outworked it. Here. <coughs> I hope I'm just painting a little picture of James, okay? That uh, if it was the brother of Jesus, this is who he was. He's writing this letter, okay? And it's sometimes important to get the background because it actually helps us really understand the power and the kind of authority and what he's trying to get at, okay? And then we have this remarkable situation that after Jesus has raised from the dead, a few people gather together in Jerusalem. Because Jesus has said, stay in Jerusalem and pray for the Holy Spirit. Come on. So here's a prayer meeting. And it says this. They all met together in Acts 1.14, constantly praying. And there were those among them, Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus. Look me, what a, what a transformation. You know, everything I've written, I've said and read up to now is sceptic, unbelief, rejection. And then within weeks or days even, we suddenly have another account of the brothers of Jesus there in a prayer meeting. Reminds me of my salvation. I was uh, a Methodist. I went to a Methodist youth club, never went to the church. And I think I've told the story. I ended up in church, got drunk, slept on the church hall floor. And then basically next morning, God, someone gave me a tie and that was my first service in the thing. And, but remarkably, somebody invited me to a prayer meeting. And a few youngsters went Nobody knew how to pray, so we played cards. That's the one common denominator that we all had. Funnily enough, next week someone invited me back to the same prayer meeting. And because I liked the people who were there, <laughs> I went. Someone spoke in tongue, in a spiritual tongue, two visitors. I sat in a chair and shook for half an hour. Literally shook. I, was, I didn't know I was doing that. Someone said afterwards, Colin... You were just, uh, this is 45 years ago, you were absolutely, and I, but I, I, you know what was happening to me? I knew God was in that room. I didn't know anything about God, I didn't know what the gospel was, I didn't know what, someone said, how do you become a Christian? I would say, you meet God in a prayer group, and you shake. <laughs> I'm glad nobody asked me the question, because they'll probably dismissed it. <laughs> That's a kind of, you know... But when I read this, I thought, oh, James, I understand. You're in a prayer meeting. That's how I, you know, that was the change for me. So how did he get into that prayer meeting? Well, actually, Paul, another apostle, years later, in explaining some stuff to a church, actually mentions James. And um, um, he said that... uh, As he's writing to a church in Corinth, he's writing about the resurrection of Jesus. 
And he's explaining what happened. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15.5. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seen by 500 of his followers. He's basically trying to say, this really happened. <laughs> and those 500 people, you church in Corinth, you've got to understand, this was you know, something that was authentic. Most of whom are still alive. So he said, hey, if you want to get some first eyewitness of a resurrected Jesus... There's 500 of them, most of them still arrive. You can go and talk to them, although some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. So here we have the reason that James, the sceptic, the hurt one, the unbeliever, ended up at a prayer meeting in Jerusalem with 120 other people, including his mother, and his brothers. It's because Jesus, when he was raised from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, met with a group of people. And the one person he wanted to make sure he met <laughs> was his brother James. And he had a one to one encounter with his brother James that completely changed James's life. And that's what Jesus does today. <laughs> He has one-on-one encounters. He did with me in that prayer meeting. The risen Jesus encounters you personally, loves you personally, wants to save you personally. And so he did that with James. And James radically changed. We don't know what was discussed in that meeting together. I mean, it's fascinating, wasn't it? We're fascinating conversation. There's so many conversations I want to ask in heaven when I meet some people. How did that go? Do you know? (laughs) Loads of them. This is one of them. Fascinating. Because James the skeptic, James the unbeliever, James the hurt brother, the offended one, felt that way anyway. (laughs) Because he didn't understand why Jesus was incorporating so many other people into the family. (laughs) But we know why. Suddenly, James has a revelation and becomes one of that big family, (laughs) one of 120, and then could say these glorious words, you must have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I've honed in on those words. The skeptic has now been able to say, having personal encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you must worship the glorious, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so, just want to encourage you that actually the writer of this book had that beautiful encounter. And so, let's, I said I was going to spend quite a bit of time on the first bit, but I just thought it was so helpful. Sometimes we kind of miss bits Because, you know, we dive into some of the application. But the background to this writer is just tremendous. And it's why he's so passionate that the church truly reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why he goes into now saying these sort of things you must put right. Okay? And um, so... He wants to exhort people. He said this, My dear brothers and sisters, 
How can you have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favour some people over others? And, um, you know, he had learned probably the hard way, having been a (laughs) half-brother and realising that there was a bigger family that Jesus was putting together, which we are part of. We're part of the glorious church of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is this. If we've all been saved by a personal encounter with the glorious risen Jesus, it is incumbent on us not to favour one person over another. (laughs) It's incumbent on us not to favour one person over another. So, and... um, It was even more pertinent um, in the little groups that James was writing to, because he's writing to Jewish believers who are scattered all over the Roman world. They would have been meeting probably in homes, probably in, uh, in homes that you'd need permission to go to. Very opposite to our world that we live in. We, we go on Instagram and, and, uh, and any other social media. We want people to come to this open meeting. The reality is, in those days, persecution meant you were careful who came into your room. <laughs> and those who did join you often had to leave their mother and father, their community, the synagogue, and join you. That you became their new family. And so you can imagine that in that, people were nervous, people were trying to find new friends, and if favouritism got into the mix there, how unsettling, how difficult that is when you are already feeling the pressure of persecution. So it's so important that James is saying we must tackle favouritism um, and uh, that um, uh, it's, it's not part of the church here. Phil Moore, who uh, wrote a commentary on this uh, chapter, says this. He said um, that there was a Greek who was converted in Athens, and he's, this is his quote, He saw how the church loved one another. They did not despise the widow or grieve the orphan. And he that has distributes liberally to him who has not. And if they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he or her were their own brother or sister. So basically this, this Greek who was not a Christian is basically seeing the church not having favourites, but actually taking hold of anybody who's coming in, especially the poor, the orphan, the widow, and embracing them and making them and helping them feel totally part of the family. And, uh, you know, James had witnessed firsthand favouritism at its most negative. You see, in Acts 6... There's a lot of Greek widows, Greek-speaking widows, and there's a lot of Jewish-speaking, Hebrew-speaking widows in the church there. 
And James was one of the leaders now of this big, growing church. And the Greek-speaking widows felt that there was some racial discrimination going on. That there was actually favoritism happening. They felt that they weren't being looked after as well as the Hebrew-speaking people. Now, we live in a multicultural society and we have a lot of people. We have people here. We have people in CCM who are from different nations. I know that sometimes people can feel (laughs) discriminated against, can feel overlooked, can feel like, oh, they want that person more than that. Do you understand? And sometimes it is not even meant. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? This is real. And what James was finding in Acts 6 was real. And the apostles were so heartbroken about it because it wasn't their heart. But it obviously was what was felt. And so they immediately said, you Greek speakers, find some people you trust, (laughs) full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll appoint them so that you know that actually you're going to be served well. Isn't that remarkable? So James understood that even when favoritism gets in, even if it's not meant, <laughs> it hurts, it hinders. And he was part of the church that endeavoured to solve it. And, uh, you know, as a CCM, we understand that we're becoming more and more multicultural right around our sites, changing all the time. And we've set a group up, Rosie, who, uh, who's in our Falafel site, Tom, they're holding little group discussions now from people from different sites, from different backgrounds, and asking the question, where is this kind of favouritism? Is there things that are hindering you <laughs> becoming fully involved? Do you know, are there things that we are blind to? So I'm, I'm trying to make it very, very real <laughs> because it's very real to James, because James had come through to being part of this glorious church, multinational, international church. And he was writing to Jewish people all over the Roman Empire. And he's basically saying, please, 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 (laughs) don't let (laughs) favouritism hinder you building a true, glorious church. And he just ramps it up. It's interesting in... That sometimes when we think of favouritism, we think, ah, oh, it's, it's okay, it's, it's minor. Do you understand what I mean? You, you can think that sometimes. And I, even the way I introduced it showed that <laughs> you, you can see it quite frivolously, you know. Favourite cake, do you know. So it's interesting that um, uh, it says in uh, verse 5, I'll quickly go through now because I'm getting, it says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Aren't, the ones who will in, aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom, he promised to those who love him? But you dishonour the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into the courts? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? So basically, he's basically said, there's a favouritism going with rich and poor here. The Salvation Army started 
because William Booth took a load of poor kids into a church and the minister said, please come through another door next time. You want to cry, don't you? But that is a Methodist church that was born out of evangelism to the poor has suddenly lost the plot. So easy, so easy to do. And he said, I'm going to build a community that loves the poor. And James is saying, look, I want you to know, we sorted it out in Jerusalem to help the orphans and the widows who felt that they were not being looked after, the Greek ones. And then he, he ramps it up. I'm running out of time here, sorry. And um, he says this. You, in the verse 8, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbour as yourself. So that's why you shouldn't have discrimination. But if you favour some people over others, you're committing sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. And then he absolutely ramps it up, and I'll finish on this. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is guilty, as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God has said, do not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. Isn't it fascinating? He's talking about favouritism as a sin. And then he equates it (laughs) with murder and adultery. Man alive, that is ramping it up. (laughs) And he's basically saying, look, if I murder you, God forbid, (laughs) but don't commit adultery, I am still a sinner. (laughs) And we all understand that, don't we? That is absolutely easy to see. But he's basically saying this, if you commit the sin of favouritism that means that some people feel neglected, especially the poor the widows and the orphans then you are committing a sin and he's putting it in the same world because they're all a sin against humanity murder adultery favouring rich people and not poor people